We're going to be looking at a couple of verses from the book of uh, Titus, chapter 2, and verse 11 and 12 in particular. Well, here we are. It's 2023. Um, and I don't know if you're the type, but I know that every year there are people that create New Year's resolutions. This is the year that fill in the blank. The few of the top 10 from 2022, the resolutions that people had. Let me just give you a few of the top 10 from last year. We had exercise more, eat healthier, lose weight, live more economically or sort of under a budget, manage time better, work on stress management, quit smoking or quit a bad habit. Anyone sort of hear a pattern there between all of those things? Each and every one of those resolutions required self-control. It required self-control. Question, what do the following people have in common? The student flunking out of college because they don't study enough. The employee that never seems to meet the deadline. The spouse that routinely bursts out in anger. The gossip. The person who is always late for appointments. And the Christian who never grows because he does not spend time alone with God. They lack self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. In my 18 years of pastoral ministry, I would say that the presence or the absence of self-control is one of the most influential factors in whether a person will grow, will grow in holiness or have serious problems within their Christian walk. The fruit of self-control affects how you manage your time, your money, your ability to overcome temptation, the development of, of those godly character qualities that we so want, the controlling of our temper, our tongue. It controls, self-control helps us in the regulating of our health with a proper diet, exercise, rest, all of these things. And most importantly, self-control will have a key factor in whether or not we spend consistent time in God's word, in prayer, and meditation. One of the biggest problems that we have when it comes to the spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline of self-control, is that we too often look for a quick fix that doesn't require a sustained discipline. It would be like the ad, the ad that promises, just pop this pill. You can eat whatever you want, sit around and watch Netflix all day long, and every month you'll lose 10 pounds. That's the kind of self-control most of us are looking for. But we all know that there's only one way that someone can consistently lose weight and keep that weight off. Eat less, eat healthy, and do some exercise. And why is that so hard? Because it needs self-control. The spiritual fruit of self-control is not a quick fix, but it will guarantee the results we want in Christ. For us to bear this fruit, it requires a lifetime habit of discipline for the purpose, for the purpose of godliness and glorifying Christ as our Savior. It's not so that self-control is not so that I can get an A as a student, get a raise, or so that my clothes will actually fit and I'll look better. The purpose of this fruit is to glorify the Lord through our progressive sanctification, bearing witness that Christ is our living Savior. But let's get one thing straight. And I always do this when we look at something like this. Before we continue a discussion of the spiritual fruit of self-control, 
we need to make this clear. The fruit of self-control is a post-salvation gift. It is a gift that comes after salvation. We're not talking about doing things that are good or correct in an attempt to win God's affection. It's not faith plus works is what saved. It is grace plus faith that saves. And today we will examine that salvation and that same grace is what brings good works and this thing that we're going to talk about, self-control. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone may boast. For we, the believer, are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the best news that any sinner can have. It's not our works that saves, but solely God's grace, an undeserved gift that gave us faith, brought us salvation, and now we are his, Christ's workmanship, created in Christ for what? For good works. Recreated in Christ for his purpose, godliness, good works. Yes, well, salvation is by Grace alone, through faith alone, and given to us wholly apart from our works, there remains a place for our efforts in the Christian life. But here's the thing. Do not get discouraged or overwhelmed by this. That same God-given grace that gave us saving faith also is the means that trains us to live in godliness which requires self-control. So let's read the passage today and deal a bit more with this aspect, the fruit of self-control. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So here we go. The grace of God and how it works in our lives is arguably the most important concept for us to understand and to live by in the battle to be godly. Because this is so important, the understanding of, of, of God's grace and how it works, the enemy of our souls has created much confusion and controversy on this topic. But, but if you can fight your way clear in understanding and applying God's grace, Romans 6.14 tells us that with this grace, you will experience a close relationship with God and a consistent victory over sin. Paul, Paul's the author of this letter to Titus and God's grace saturated Paul's thinking. One scholar writes, Paul could not think of Christian truth and conduct apart from God's grace. The classic definition of grace is sort of the best one. God's grace is his unmerited favor. Grace means that God showered favor and blessing on those who did not in any way deserve or earn it. They deserved his judgment and wrath, but he showered them with favor. God's grace really runs counter or contrary to the way the world works. So it's difficult sometimes for us to grasp it and get used to the fact that this is true. 
The world works on a merit system. You, you know what I'm talking about. If you do well in school and you, you get good grades, um, you earn awards. You get scholarships and such. If you do well in sports, you make the team and, and, and you get a lot of applause. And this carries over into the business world. Exceptional performance earns promotions, bonuses, and raises. Here's the thing. In the spiritual realm, all of the world's religions, except for biblical Christianity, work on that type of merit system. Ask the average person. Ask the average person their opinion. How does one get right with God? How does one get to heaven? And you will hear something about being a good person or good works mixed in their answer. It was at the heart of the, the Pharisaic legalistic uh, religion in the times of Jesus and Paul. But here's the thing. Our passage instructs us that it's all about grace. It's all about God's grace. God's grace first saves and then trains the saved in godliness and good works. When discussing the role of grace in salvation and the development of godly character, listen to what A.W. Pink said. He said, where the grace of God brings salvation to the soul, it works effectively. And what is, what is it, excuse me, that grace teaches? Grace teaches practical holiness. Grace does not eradicate ungodliness and worldly lusts, but it causes us to deny them. And what but divine grace can do such a thing? Can philosophy? No, it cannot. Can ethics? No, nor any form of human education or culture can do such a thing. Only grace, God's grace. See, God's grace is God's provision for our new birth, that salvation, past tense. But it's also his present provision for our daily growth, working out our salvation, as Paul calls it, in which God's spirit progressively sets believers apart from the world, the flesh, the devil, and unto God himself. Grace, initially saving the sinner and subsequently sanctifying the saint. So let's dig a little deeper here and learn more about the role of grace in this passage. In verse 11, we see that God's grace brings salvation. When Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, he's referring to the embodiment of grace. And that's the person of Jesus Christ, who was full of grace and truth. And Pastor Kyle preached on this last week, Christmas Sunday, when he finished up John 1 uh, at verse 14. God rightly could have sent his son to condemn us and judge us because of our sins. But instead, John 3, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, we need to make something clear about what Paul meant here when he says, bring salvation to all people. That's important. See, Paul meant that God's grace, that it appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, offers salvation. But it must be put into the right context. How many times do you run into that problem where someone takes a verse out of context and presents it, and you're like, ooh. But then when you look at the context, you're like, wait a second. Wait a second. What does he mean by all peoples? Well, here, the first 10 verses of chapter 2 here in the, in, in the book of Titus, Paul spoke of various groups. He spoke of older men, older women, 
younger women, younger men, and of slaves and bondservants. So when he goes on to say that God's grace brings salvation to all people, he meant to all types of people, including those whom he had just discussed, who the world despises, even, and this was the key in this letter, to slaves. Point, no one is beyond. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. Now, by no means does this mean that all people are saved or that all people will be saved. The Bible is clear that there are two separate final destinations for all people. Those who by God's grace believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, they will be with the Lord in heaven. And those who do not believe in Christ will pay the penalty of eternal separation from God in hell. And Keith Knopf and I were just having a discussion about that this morning. But here's the thing. People don't need salvation unless they know that they are lost. As Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. By the righteous, Jesus meant the self-righteous. The self-righteous, sort of the Pharisee that didn't see their need for a savior. But those who knew they were sinners understood that they needed a savior. Think of it like this. Suppose you were standing in um, Costco. Okay, and if you don't have a Costco membership, Sam's Club, whatever it may be. You're standing in Costco. You're standing in the, the crowded line there at the holiday season and you've got your groceries and you're ready to roll. And suddenly I come running up, I grab your arm, I jerk you out of the line and I forcibly drag you out of the building prior to you making your purchase. Well, I can guess that you would probably be a little unhappy with me after you've gone through all that work to make your purchase. But one simple fact would change your attitude when you learn that just moments before, the store had been taken over by a, by a bunch of gun-wielding people that were threatening to kill everyone inside. At first, you had no clue of the danger that you were in. But then, when the dangers realized, you understood that you were doomed unless you were rescued. You were doomed unless you were rescued. Before you can appreciate God's grace... You must know, and this is only by God's grace that you will realize this, you must know that because of your sin, you are headed for eternal judgment unless someone intervenes. And that someone is Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said this, you know that the rope is around your neck. But it's God's grace that cuts the rope, even though you are guilty as charged and you deserve to have been hung. That's a pretty vivid picture. It's around your neck. You know you're guilty. Do you have anything you need to say? But the rope is cut. The rope is cut. The rope is cut by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, even though we are guilty as charged and deserve to die. And that brings us to the second point. If you have experienced this, this God's grace that Paul mentions here in verse 11, you've come to saving faith and you're a new creation, you truly are now made for the glory of God. You are recreated in Christ as we read from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You are recreated, made anew in Christ for his purpose. And his purpose are good works that he has mapped out, he has planned out for you beforehand. And that is an awesome, awesome thought. So in verse 12, we see that this means that God's grace trains the saved in godliness. 
It is this grace that is going to train us in godliness. The word instructs or trains, whichever translation you're using, means sort of like that child training. If you're raising a child, you had to work on training the child. It includes teaching, but it also includes correcting and disciplining. It's a process, this training, it's a process that begins at salvation and it will continue until that day where we each stand before the Lord in glory. But note, but note that this sanctifying grace does not mean that we can live as we please. Rather, this grace that Paul is talking about here is a grace that trains. It's a grace that disciplines and it's a grace that gives instruction for one purpose only. For his glory, for his glory, for us to live in a godly conduct. When you experience God's unmerited favor in Jesus Christ, it motivates you. And notice I said, I didn't say it should motivate you. It motivates you to want to please him in everything that you do. As you read God's word, you begin to realize that there is much in your life that displeases him. It displeases the Lord, the one who gave himself for you on the cross to save you from the righteous judgment that each and every one of us deserves. So what do we do? So what do we do? We begin to walk in the path that Jesus had described. And he described it as denying yourself daily, taking up your cross and following him. Paul states here in verse 12 that this is saying no to ungodliness. But see, here's the thing. Saying no to ungodliness is not enough. To say no to godliness and worldly desires, we must be saying yes to something else. Do you sort of follow what I'm saying? No, not this, but what's going to be its substitute. Y'all follow? If I say no to this, but I don't replace it with something, what's going to happen? You got it, Wallace. There I go. Okay? So here it is. It's not enough to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. You must also say yes, as Paul said, to living sensibly, righteous, godly lives and to glorify God. And so that those in the world will be drawn to the Savior that dwells within you. That's why verse said said that grace is grace is the provision to train us to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to be able to renounce ungodly and worldly passions, we must have the fruit of self-control. And then Paul said, this then will result. As we deny this, this will then result in upright, godly living. And this upright, godly living is the fruit or the evidence of the spirit that dwells within us and has provided us the power and the strength and the guidance for self-control. And that's where I want to spend the, the majority of the rest of this time here preaching is dealing with this aspect of, by grace, self-control. The Greek word for self-control comes from the root word meaning power or lordship. Self-control is, is an inward rule or regulation of every area of your life under the ultimate authority and control of God's spirit that is completely in line with his word. By definition, self-control means overruling your emotions because of a higher goal or a higher purpose. And what is the higher goal or higher purpose for the believer? It's Christ. It's all about Christ. It's because we literally 
must see Christ as more beautiful and more precious than any other thing here on earth. Christ must be more precious than fill in the blank. It has to be about Christ overruling our emotions because of a higher goal, because we want to please and honor our God. But there are some things that we must first understand about this spiritual fruit of self-control. Self-control is primarily inward and is only secondarily outward. See, we see the outward evidence of people with self-control. But it's an inward place of starting. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 through 23. He said, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within the defiled man. So here we go. It would follow then that if we only control such evil desires in order to look good in front of other people or to avoid getting in trouble, we're literally just putting a Band-Aid over the cancer of the heart. Self-control is a heart issue. But the control of the Holy Spirit, that's the thing. The control of the Holy Spirit extends to the heart level, allowing us to deal with temptation before it goes any farther. But there's a paradox here. To be spirit-controlled results in being self-controlled. Spirit-controlled results in being self-controlled. That's why Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. As we walk by the Spirit, He produces, the Spirit produces in us the ability to control every 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 area of our lives in line with His holy Set apart purpose. And that implies active responsibility on our part. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.29, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Striving according to the power of the Spirit that is working mightily within me. Paul, he says, I am laboring, I am striving through the power and according to the Spirit. Now, Tim just talked about it with Romans 12, 1 and 2. The renewing of the mind, being in the Word. This is critical for this to be transpiring and taking place on a daily basis. But folks, this does not mean self-will. The self-controlled person is submitting to God's will as revealed in His Word. Whereas the self-willed person is acting for their own selfish desires and not for the will of God. Because God has given us new life in Christ and has given us his Holy Spirit to indwell with us, we have both the responsibility and the ability to yield our self-will to his revealed will. We have the responsibility and we have the ability through the Holy Spirit within us. First, excuse me, Colossians 1.10 tells us, sanctifying grace provides the power for believers to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all aspects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, here comes that thing again. You're going, okay, yes, 
the Holy Spirit and this sanctifying uh, grace that takes place in our life. Self-control will allow us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all aspects of our life, to bear good works. But notice Paul finished there with saying, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as this work is going on the entire time, what are you also increasing in? The knowledge of God. And how are we increasing in the knowledge of God? Through his word, through being in Bible studies, through being at Sunday, through, through preaching, through being in his word, increasing in his knowledge is a key aspect. Here's another thing we need to note about the fruit of the spirit. I'm telling you, the fruit of the spirit, this aspect of self-control is not, it is not legalism. Legalists attempt to look spiritual to others by keeping man-made rules. The fruit of the Spirit is about living openly before God who examines your heart. That's why Paul says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our heart. The reason for self-control, hear me out. If I meet with someone for marital counseling, a follow what I'm saying, don't distort this. If I meet with someone with marital counseling and the only reason they're there is they want to make their spouse happy and be able to stay in the marriage, they're going to miss out. Because if it's strictly just about making your spouse happy, you're missing the key aspect of what this is. You're missing the key aspect. It's not about a duty. It is about before Christ and Christ alone. You want to save your marriage? Yes, you should. But first and foremost, it would be to glorify Christ, the one who saved you. For the glory of Christ. And when you focus on Christ and not some duty which you feel you must perform in order for things to be right. When you focus on Christ and Christ is the reason that fruit will bear. That fruit will bear. It will change your heart. It will change your mind. It will change your passions. But don't confuse, we also must not confuse self-control with self-denial, meaning denying yourself. Certain legitimate, see, people will do this thing. I have self-control. We're talking about the spiritual fruit of self-control. They'll deny themselves certain comforts or even maybe impose a hardship upon themselves thinking it will be of some sort of spiritual battle. It's sort of like suffering to prove the point of the control of the flesh. It'd be sort of like the, the monastery mentality. You, you eat a meager diet. You sleep on a hard mat in a, in a cold room and you take a vow of poverty in order to control your flesh. If I do these things, I will control my flesh. But that's not what's going to control your flesh. That's denying yourself a thing. Self-denial is not going to control your flesh. Paul describes this kind of approach in Colossians 2.23, saying that these things indeed have appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, in false humility and neglect of the body. But they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The only thing that is going to combat and change the indulgence of the flesh is by his grace, his power, his spirit, that we submit, draw upon that, and take action. Paul gives the correct example in in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. But here's, he divided the two. He said, they do it to receive the perishable crown. So this athlete has the self-control here, but it's for the perishable crown. It's for for the earthly reward. He says, but we, 
We have this self-control, the fruit of the Spirit self-control. We have it for an imperishable reward. That means our reward is a heavenly reward. That's why we do it. Not for the here and now, but for the glory of the Lord. In referencing our verses, Barclay says this. There are a few passages in the New Testament which so vividly set out the moral power to carry out the ethical demands as this does. Its whole stress is the miracle, and I love this, the miracle of moral change which Jesus Christ can work. Our change is a miracle. The change we all want is found in and through the leading of the power of his spirit. Is that not true? By the leading and the power of his spirit. Hey, before I got saved, when I was 28 years old, I was doing everything in my flesh I thought I could to preserve my marriage. But because I was a sinful person and a knucklehead, nothing was going right. Because everything I was doing was for an imperishable crown. It was for the the instant thing on earth. Make this right, make this go away. Can we patch this up? Can we... And then in Christ, by God's grace, through faith, when salvation came, your whole way of thinking changes. Because then everything you do is for, should be for God's glory and his glory alone. And as you do it for God's glory, trust me, the reward far exceeds not only here on earth, but heavenly, the reward far, reward far exceeds the reward of the imperishable crown. See, often people will be like, oh yeah, you know, it's storing up in treasures, but treasures, but there'll be no reward here on earth. Wahaha. If you ask my wife, literally, you've probably heard this. If you've been in youth or college, you know this. My wife literally said to me in the first three years of our marriage, when I brought up wanting, hey, children, she literally looked at me straight in the face and said, I'll never have a child with you because I wouldn't want to reproduce you. You laugh. And you know what? As a sinner, I giggled. I was like, ah, that's, that's not funny. No, I'm very serious. And I was like, oh, I got to. If I make it about an imperishable crown, if I make it about things of this earth and how it'll come back to please me and help me in my marriage or workplace or whatever it is, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's literally doing these things not for the perishable crown, but the imperishable crown. And you know what? Through God's grace and mercy, when my salvation came and when how I took took action upon my marriage and everything, when it literally just had to do with Christ and honoring him, trust me, the reward that was of the imperishable crown far exceeded any reward I had ever had when I was serving myself in my marriage. Far exceeded it. For the glory of Christ, that imperishable crown will not only reap you heavenly rewards, it will reap you rewards here on earth that will bless and encourage you and that will truly speak of the testimony of a living Savior. So now I just want to spend just a couple seconds here talking uh, about some, some, some application. Where do we need self-control? Yeah, that's a, that's a bad question. Where do you need self-control? <laughs> everywhere. Okay? The guys that think my, me knew the answer. It's everywhere. We need self-control everywhere. But when you think of it that way, it can become a little overwhelming. But here's the thing. For those that are in Christ... We are to have self-control in certain places. Let's talk about them. Number one, the body. According to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you are to glorify God with your body. Take care of your body. Take care of your body. This includes getting proper rest, doing these things, not being, being, being a workaholic, getting enough rest, not being a lazy person. It means getting some exercise, eating healthily, 
doing things that would honor the Lord with your body. And this will vary from person to person, but it is only done with self-control. Controlling your body also requires godly control over your sexual desires. God made those desires, but he made those desires designed strictly to be within the marriage relationship. We must also have self-control of our minds. Our culture absolutely bombards us through various media with ungodly ways of thinking and living. To be godly, you must control your mind. This is why Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And when you meditate on those things, what are you meditating on them for? That's it for self-application. Y'all want to start the year off right? Roll through Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. You'll be blown away at how many of those he says, when I see that godly character in some, someone else resolved that I will meditate upon that and apply it to my life. That's the call. Our minds need to be renewed, as Tim said, from Romans 12 too. What do you think about? What do you think about? You can't engage in a secret life of lust after sex or greed and become godly. To control your thought life, you must control what comes in through the gates of your eyes and your ears. Saturate your mind in the Bible with good books that help you to grow in godliness. Control what you expose your mind to. That's TV, Movies, the internet, podcasts, social media, you know what I'm talking about. Third, we need self-control of our emotions. Hey, you and I are not helpless victims to our emotions through Christ. If you're prone to depression, uh, anxiety, or impulsiveness, you may have to battle battle harder in self-control than someone else will. But the fruit of the spirit of self-control is promised to all that buy, that walk by the spirit and not just to certain personality types. If you walk by the spirit, it is not that they'll be able to have self-control because they're different. No. You will too if you walk by the spirit. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All of us know areas in our life that we have issues with self-control. You are a new creation in Christ, recreated in him for good works. Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through him who strengthened you. If you live by constantly yielding your emotions, you will not grow in holiness. Self-control means controlling your emotions with the higher goal. And the higher goal is the glory of Christ. Four, control our time. Man, I hear this all the time. I don't have time. Ungodliness is literally the, 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 the benchmark for this. I don't have time to and fill it in. Because when we say we don't have time to, it typically is in something that would have been of godly doing what our spouse asked us to do, being in the word of God, being in prayer, making it to church, being part of a faith group. We always have time for fill in that blank. Okay. Okay. Fill in that blank. The question is, do you want to be godly? If so, cut out unnecessary things that hinder where you spend your time. Folks, it goes God, family, work. Y'all hear me? Not work, family, God. God, family, work. Control your finances. So we need self-control in our finances. We often complain that we don't have enough money to pay bills, let alone to give consistently to the Lord's work. But usually the problem is that we don't properly manage what the Lord has entrusted us with. Let me put it bluntly. The mega channel package for TV viewing, Starbucks, and the ultimate data plan on the newest cell phone are not necessities 
of life. Control your tongue. Uh-oh. Control your tongue. Active, uh, abusive speech, gossip, words that tear down others, even if it's in jest. That drives me nuts. Lashed out with the tongue, and then the person goes, oh, just joking. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's not a joke. Okay, it's lack of self-control. These things are sinful, Colossians 3.8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. In a nutshell, Paul says this in Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will be so that it will give grace to those who hear. Wow. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. How much of our speech needs to then just be eliminated? Okay. To please God, you must learn to control your tongue. The entire third chapter of the book of James is really dedicated to this. Seventh one here. The last little point on this. We need to control our relationships. We need self-control in our relationships. I don't mean to take control in your relationship, a, a manner towards others. I mean, you must take the initiative to distance yourself from anything that pulls you towards the world and the flesh ungodliness. Be careful about relationships with unbelievers. Second Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness. Hey folks, if, it's pretty simple. If you're single, you don't date non-believers. If you develop friendships with a non-believer, be careful to keep your mind, to keep in mind the aim of being a godly witness so that you do not join them in the pleasures of this world. And if you go into a business partnership with a non-believer, well, that could get real interesting. Um, if for anyone who's ever done that, you know it can be a struggle. Work on developing God, godly, loving relationships and begin within your own household with your spouse and your children. Practice biblical love on a daily basis. Ask God for a mentor, a partner, iron sharpening iron, men with men, women with women, who can help you grow in Christ. Even though self-control is by grace through faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, I would really suggest you do this, folks. I'm, I'm very serious when I say this. Write a one-sentence purpose statement on this, on what you want Granted, there are a lot of verses that would give us specific information, but no specific verse that would help us with this mission statement about uh, honoring God and serving Christ. But consider things like Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. How about John seventeen four? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 1 Corinthians 9, 23, I do all things... I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I might become a fellow partaker in it. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We should have some kind of statement, some kind of plan of our character uh, that we should have. Let me ask you this question. If at your memorial service, a statement were to be read about you, who you were, what would you want it to say? See, I would love for mine to say something like this. He, being David, glorified God by being a godly husband and father and used his gifts for the building up of the body of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel. All of those things would be submitting and being led by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian will desire to glorify God, but beyond that, our purposes, our statements will vary based on our personalities and our gifts. Write something down. Look at it. Think about it. Am I sticking to that? 
Establish biblical goals for every area of your life to move forward in this thing of godliness. We must do this kind of thing. We must have a determination scripturally to move forward. Plan your goals. Make a plan. Come on. Those of you, whether it's at home for meal planning, the workplace for a job thing, we have to make plans for everything, don't we? Then why is it when it comes to our spiritual life so often we make no plan except to show up on Sunday morning? And sometimes we don't even get that done. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Make a spiritual plan. This is part of self-control. This is part of submitting to the, to the spirit. Plan out what you're going to do. And again, I'll drop back to that marriage one. If your marriage is struggling, if your marriage is struggling because you have a bad temper, you should make controlling your temper for the glory of God and the loving of your wife like Christ loved the church, your goal. Not controlling your temper so that your wife will get off your case and quit nagging. The controlling of your temper is to glorify the Lord and to love your wife like Christ loved the church. That's how we have to look at these things. We must pursue them. We must pursue them. And finally here, we must walk by the means of the Holy Spirit every day. Folks, this is it. By the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Paul goes on to talk about the strong desires of the flesh that war against us. If you do not conquer these desires, you will not grow in holiness. But we don't win wars accidentally. You must devote yourself to the battle. Commit to the fight. Commit to the fight. Anything less will result in defeat. To walk by the Spirit means to depend upon and yield to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit moment by moment, day by day. Walking. Walking by the Spirit isn't as spectacular as, as leaping or running or flying by the Spirit. You're not going to cover as much ground. But if we keep at it, if we keep at it, we will get to where we're going. We will get to that place. Also, picture fruit. Fruit implies a process, slow and deliberate. There'll be setbacks, there'll be difficulties along the way. But the question is, are you actively, are you actively, purposefully walking by the Spirit? Coming back to the dependence on Him when you've fallen. We all fall, yeah? We all fall. But are we coming back to Him in dependence so that over the long haul, the fruit of the Spirit, including self-control, will be growing in our life? Jim Elliott, who was 28, when he and four other young men were, uh, were, were speared to death in the attempt to spread the gospel to the tribes in Ecuador, in discussing God's grace... And his mission or his purpose in life. He said this. How poorly will appear anything but a consuming operative faith in the person of Christ. How lost a last a life lived in any other light but this. I see clearly now that anything, whatever it is, if it be not on the principle of grace, it's not of God. See, here's the thing, folks. It is all about God's grace. It is God's grace that saves us. And then it is God's grace that trains us and motivates us to be godly people in this present age. Zealous for good works, for his glory, for the testimony of a living Savior to everyone around us until the day we are with our Savior in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that as we start this new year, Lord, that, that truly we would contemplate and and give you all praise and glory 
for your provision of grace. First and foremost, that grace which brought faith and saved us. But Lord, may we truly dig into the truth of this grace. Again, the unmerited gift that also draws us to you on a daily basis to bring glory to Christ our Savior, to give us the strength and endurance for that imperishable prize. But Lord, may we truly submit this year. May we live by the power of your spirit. May we be in the word. May it be for your glory. And Lord, may we truly stand out in a way, not for ourselves, but for evidence and proof of a living savior. For the days are short. May we use them well for your glory. And may people see the one and only hope that is found in Christ through your work in us. And it's in his name we pray, amen.